you might know that over the last few weeks we've been um, sort of going through a series looking at different um, pivotal moments in the life of the early church. So we've been, if you've been here for the last three weeks, you'll have seen a sort of progress of the, the different stories we've been looking at. Three weeks ago we looked at Pentecost and at the very beginnings of that journey. The series is called The Church Has Left the Building, the point at which the followers of Jesus were given the tools to go out and talk to people about the good news. Two weeks ago, we looked at um, Cornelius and Peter and that really famous story, if you hear it, the really famous um, dream that Peter had where um, a sheet was uh, lowered down from heaven with lots of foods on it that Peter would have considered unclean. Um, and God said to Peter, don't call unclean what I have called clean. And the point of that story was about Peter getting the first taste that actually the good news wasn't just for the Jews. Um, it was for absolutely everybody. It was the first sort of understanding of that idea. Um, and then last week we looked at the Council of Jerusalem where Peter, having had that dream, they all gathered in Jerusalem, all the followers of Jesus, and actually began to codify and actually agree together that this message wasn't just for the Jews. It was for absolutely everybody. The fourth story is the one that we've just read, um, which is Paul beginning to work out in that case is this isn't just for the Jews. If this is for everybody, how are we going to talk to people about it? How are we going to communicate this message to people? Um, and I think it's a fantastic story. There's just so much in it. Um, in 20 minutes, 25 minutes, it's difficult to unpack all the content that's in there. But here are some of my thoughts about it. It's um, Just to retell the story again, um, it's Paul arriving in Athens. If you read back a couple of um, paragraphs in Acts chapter 17, actually you'll see that Paul, Paul, Timothy and Silas, they were traveling together, um, started their journey in Thessalonica in the north of Greece. Um, and at that point, Paul was out talking to the Jews. He was in the synagogue um, uh, and he was talking to them about the good news of Jesus. Um, he did such a good job in Thessalonica that he got quite a lot of people to sort of sign up and buy into that way of thinking. Um, he did such a good job that he wound up most of the Jews in the city um, and they decided to kick him out. So he got chased out of Thessalonica by a mob. And so he disappeared off down the road to a place called Beria. Um, again, Beria is a city in the, in the north of Greece. Um, and again, went to talk to the synagogue there um, and went and talked to the Jews in the city. Um, they were much more receptive and uh, keen to listen to Paul, but the people from Thessalonica were still wound up with him, so they sent their mob down the road and chased him out of Beria too. Um, and so he left Beria and ended up on a ship um, and set off to Athens. Um, Timothy and Silas stayed behind in Beria and Paul pitched up in Athens. And so when he arrives in Athens, he arrives in a city that hundreds of years before had been the economic powerhouse almost of the world. Um, actually, right at the moment, in, this is in the midst of the Roman Empire and um, that's on the way and it's not really the economic capital, but it's certainly the arts and the philosophy capital of uh, the Near East. Um, so Paul pitches up there and he's got some time to kill really because he's really waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up with him. Um, so Paul, rather than just sitting in his hotel room um, watching some box sets, um, sets off into Athens uh, to have a wander around the city. Athens is a city at this point and for the hundreds of years before that is just full of uh, temples and full of gods and full of deities and full of buildings named after gods and it's just a city that's awash with as many different gods as you could possibly think of. Um, some of the writers about this story say that um, in Athens... You were, it was easier to find a god than it was to find a human being. Um, there were just literally gods everywhere you looked. Paul is wandering around this really 
um, cosmopolitan city that's full of this polytheistic culture, many, many different gods. And the beginning of that passage said that Paul walk, wanders off into the city and he's distressed by what he sees. And I don't think we should overlook that word. Um, actually, when it's translated elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated as angry. Paul is really angry and distressed and upset by what he sees around him. Um, so what does Paul do about this? Well, he doesn't um, set up a campaign group. He doesn't raise a mob. He, does, he just goes out to the city and starts talking with people. So he goes to the synagogue and he starts talking to people at the synagogue about who he thinks God is, who he thinks Jesus is. Um, and he goes to the market, to the Agora, it's written in some of the Bibles, to the marketplace and talks with Stoic philosophers and he talks with Epicurean philosophers and he talks with just people he meets in the market. Um, Paul um, talks to these people. They're people that are really interested in new ideas. There was that little, I don't know whether you noticed that in what Jill said, but that little bit in brackets that said the people of Athens loved, no, loved nothing more than talking about new ideas. These were people who loved batting around philosophical concepts and loved thinking about different theology and loved you know, working out an argument. They really loved new ideas. And so Paul came to talk to them, um, and he's throwing out his new ideas into the mix of all of that. And they call him a babbler. I don't know if you noticed that word in the text. Um, babbler, actually, the, the way they would have been using it is they sometimes use that to describe poor people who wandered around the city picking up just bits of scrap metal and scrap cloth and collecting together bits and odds and ends around the city. And in effect, these philosophers are calling Paul uh, a thought babbler, if you like. They're saying he's somebody from this province somewhere at the other side of the Mediterranean and he's just wandering around with his random bits of ideas that he's throwing out. They're being a bit rude to him. But he gets um, sent off to the Areopagus. Um, the Areopagus is either um, a sort of a building um, on Mars Hill in Athens. It's actually also the name of the sort of council of elders in the city. And so you can read it in two ways. Either Paul was sent off to, this, to Mars Hill to talk to them, or it meant that he was sent in front of the, the Council of Elders to talk. Um, either way, he went to talk to some of the sort of elders in the city about this, and again, they love batting around these ideas um, and love the new things he's got to say. And it's really interesting that Paul starts his message to them by finding some common ground. He says to them, look, I see you're really religious people. I've wandered around your city and see you're massively religious. You've got gods and deities everywhere I look. And then he says, I've even seen an altar to an unknown god. Um, interesting, the, the unknown god bit is um, hundreds of years earlier, Athens had had a plague. Um, and this plague was killing lots of people. Um, and the way they tried to deal with that plague was by placating the gods. So they did sacrifices, did all sorts of things to try and placate their gods. And they went through all the hundreds of gods in the city and tried to find the one that was offended um, and just couldn't get to the bottom of it. The plague wouldn't stop. And so they called in a consultant expert from Crete to come and help them out, and he pitched up and said, ah, well, the problem is it's not any of these gods that are frustrated with you. It's a different god. You don't even know who this god is. Um, and so across the city of Athens, they erected altars to unknown gods, um, and the plague stopped at that point. So they assumed it was an unknown god that, was, uh, that they needed to um, sacrifice to in order to, to stop the plague. By the time Paul gets there, there's only one of these altars left, and so that's what Paul's referring to in that bit of text. But the interesting bit, I think, comes, Paul finds this common ground with them. He says, you're religious people, I can really see that. But then he goes on to say this about God. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heavens and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that it would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have being, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So there he's actually quoting their Greek poets back to them. There are a couple of different poets that he quotes back to them there. They're not talking about the God of the Bible, they're talking about Zeus and other gods, but he uses some of their own language, things they would understand to quote back to them. He goes on to say, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such such ignorance, but now he commends all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by a man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So Paul speaks in some pretty plain, clear language there to describe who he thinks God is. And at the end of all of that, the um, Areopagus, the council, um, get a little bit fed up with him and some of them start sneering, it says, at what he said. When he starts to begin to talk about resurrection, this is something that would have been a complete anathema to the Epicurean philosophers. They thought, when you died, that was it, lights out, nothing more. Um, There certainly wasn't the resurrection of the dead in their culture. These philosophers wouldn't have understood God being incarnate in a person either, God being summed up in a person. That wasn't how they viewed God. He'd said some stuff that would have pushed some buttons for these um, philosophers. And so a couple of people were interested to hear more, and to be honest, most of them just sort of dissipated at that point and left him to it. I think it's a fantastic story, and it says a lot to us about the way we communicate. And there are three things I really want to say about this story. The first one is how completely activist the story is. Paul pitches up in Athens, and rather than sit in his hotel room on his hands, he wanders around the city, and he's distressed. He's angry. He's upset by what he sees. He, he feels like he understands who the God of the universe is, and he looks around this city and just thinks, this isn't the way the world should be. This isn't how it should be, and he's distressed by it. And Paul doesn't just sit on his hands. He goes and does something about that. He doesn't you know, moan about it. He doesn't wait for Timothy and Silas to turn up and have a bit of a whinge about how terrible it is. He actually goes out into the city there and then and does something about it. And I just wondered for us as a community and for for me, what are the things that distress us, that make us angry, that make us upset? And there are things that should. Um, I was in uh, one of our schools in Birmingham a couple of weeks ago and talking to the head teacher there. And the head teacher was telling me stories, but it's a little primary school in Birmingham, and was telling me stories about some of the kids that go to the school. There are children that go to that school who were child soldiers in the Congo. There's a little girl she was telling me about who got trafficked into the UK, um, and though she's at school now, is still probably under the control of the human trafficker that brought her to the UK. There was a little boy she was telling me about who was so traumatised by his family life that he just stopped talking. He wouldn't communicate with anybody anymore. Um, That day, I also wandered around the neighbourhood with our hub leader in Birmingham, and we went to look at some buildings that we're thinking about doing some stuff in, and they were burnt-out buildings. Um, And we got around the back of these buildings, and there are people, this is 12 o'clock in the middle of the day, people um, around the back of these buildings, a whole line of people doing drug deals with people in the community out the back of their cars. 
as I wandered around that community, it's something that should make me distressed, make me upset, make me angry. And then I guess the question is, what am I going to do about that? Well, Paul in this story, he's upset, he's angry, and he goes to talk to people about it. He gets out into the market, he gets into the mix of it with all of the great philosophers of the day. He goes to talk to people about it and say, it shouldn't be like this. And the interesting thing, I think, for me is, in that story, I think that passage gives us the message that the people of Athens were into a sort of intellectual, theological game, really, that they loved batting around new ideas, and it was all about testing things out and seeing if I can argue that point and seeing if, you know, if we go up to the Areopagus, let's have this debate about stuff. And it, it almost become, by the sound of it, a sort of intellectual game. And I think Paul cuts through all of that. Paul talks really straight. He talks really clearly. He's very blunt about what he thinks. And again, I see that so much in the things... I, I mean, I probably involve myself in some of this too. We probably all do. Um, I remember Steve and I went to a, a theological seminary that Steve was speaking at a couple of years ago. And... Uh, we were, you know, Steve was one of the speakers, but there were loads. And you could just see that in that room, that this had become a theological game. There were people arguing things they didn't even believe, just to see whether, like, academically they could make it work. Um, and I think, there's not, I'm not completely knocking all of that stuff, because it does have its place. But unless it's grounded in activism, in actually doing something on the ground, in actually make meaning for people in their lives, it's a bit vacuous, isn't it? And I think Paul had got into a sort of this vacuous culture in Athens that was batting ideas around and was cutting through the middle of all that. My first point is we should be activists. Um, Steve and I and Jill were at a church leaders weekend last weekend for all the church leaders around Oasis um, and had quite a debate, actually, about real change comes from experience. But you've got to experience something to really change. Um, activism isn't a bad thing. It's actually the start of the journey to change, isn't it? I think this story talks of Paul being really activist. Second thing, and you've probably um, read stuff about this in the past if you've read this story before, there's loads to say about the communication that Paul does, about the, the medium, how he presents this message, isn't there? He starts um, this story by finding common ground with people. He says, look, I can see you're really religious people. I can see all of the things you do to worship the gods. I can see you're religious people. He quotes things from their poets. So he uses texts that these people would have understood that made sense in their culture. And he uses some of that language and then explains what he thinks some of that means. And he doesn't use in-house language. When Paul's in the synagogues, so if you look earlier in Acts, when he's talking to Jews in the synagogue, he talks about the Old Testament. He uses stories from the Old Testament. He references prophets that they wouldn't understand about. He uses terminology that the Jews would have understood. Whereas in this message, when he's talking to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews in Athens, he doesn't use any of that language. It's just really clear language that anyone could access and could be understood. I think um, this is a challenge for the church, and probably is a challenge for our church too, in, in the way we operate, um, in the way we communicate ourselves. I think Christians can fall into um, three traps. There are probably more, but three traps. One is... Um, we got so ingrained in our sort of Christian culture that we've got all of this Christianese, this Christian language that perhaps makes sense to us indoors but makes absolutely no sense to anybody else. And I think one of the risks for Christians is that we disappear off into the rest of our lives and just plug away with that Christianese and nobody has got the foggiest idea what we're talking about. 
I remember, I was telling Anna this story during the week. Um, my first girlfriend, I went to meet her parents. Um, and uh, I went to meet her parents and we were sitting around. This was the first time I'd met them. And we were sitting around the dinner table having lunch together. And they were from quite a sort of super Christian family. Um, my, <laughs> mine's, mine's not, so I didn't know any of this, <laughs> this cultural stuff. And so we sat around their table. Um, and at the beginning of lunch, they said, we're going to do grace. Um, I, I'd never really done that before, so that was you know, slightly strange for me. But then they said, we're going to sing grace. So it's starting to get a little bit weirder. And then they said, we're going to sing grace as a round. So like somebody starts... <laughs> And then two bars later, somebody else's start. So I didn't know this song. I didn't know the words. But it set off at that side of the table, and it was coming round to me. I was, like, fifth in line. And so I'm, like, desperately trying to work out the tune and the words as it's coming round. And it gets to me, and I haven't worked it out. So I sort of had to... Um, it was really humiliating. It got to me, and I just didn't understand the Christian Christianese, the Christian culture. And it's a silly story, isn't it? But I think... Um, you know, people in the rest of the world don't get some of the Christianese we use, do they? I think it's a bit like that, that it's just got no relevance, they don't understand it, and I think probably they're less willing to try and hum along the tune than we think they are. Um, I think we need to give up on our Christianese and talk to people in plain language. The second um, trap, I think, sometimes for Christians is, so we've got all our indoor language and we've got all our indoor theology that makes real sense to us indoors, um, and then when we go into the rest of our life, into the rest of our week to work, it just doesn't make any sense. Nobody can understand it. Nobody really, the theology that we've got doesn't really make sense outside of, you know, our Sunday morning service. And so we just have to go completely silent because it just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't really speak to people's real lives. It's not a genuine part of, of life. It doesn't really answer the questions people have got. So I think another risk is either we're super Christianese and ram it down people's throats or we go completely silent because we can't work it out. Or I think the third option um, is sometimes that we try and sort of repackage Christianity and make it look cool and make it look, you know, relevant to people. Um, we try and repackage, put a new gloss on sometimes Victorian theology. You know, it stopped in the Victorian times and we're going to keep that, thank you very much. And we just put a new gloss on stuff. I want to just show you, if we can just um, uh, show the little video, hopefully it will come up on the screen. Perhaps. Any joy? Oh. <laughs> oh, this is such a shame because I love this video. <laughs> Do you think it's going to work or is it? Uh, okay, we'll come back to that. <laughs> it's a video, I'll, I'll show you in a minute. Um, Steve and I went to um, America last year and we, it's a video about a, a, a sort of parody of a, a megachurch. Um, and so we went to a big uh, megachurch a few actually in America last year and in some of these places you can see the sort of new packaging it's like got a cool band and it's got lights and it's got like a trendy speaker that's got like a perfectly sculpted beard and you know like all of that sort of stuff skinny jeans and tight t-shirts and things and <laughs> yeah just just like me <laughs> um and <laughs> 
And you can see that there's sort of a new gloss on stuff, but when you dig behind, the theology is all the same stuff that you'd get at the Victorian-looking church down the road. It's still not much more relevant to people's lives. We've just tried to repackage stuff so that it appeals to people. But actually, when they dig under the surface, it doesn't appeal much more than that. I think we've got to be more genuine than that and more integral than that. And it's got to mean more in our lives than that. So I'm not saying, and hopefully we can look at this video in a second, but that um, you know a glossy service is a bad thing, that bands and lights are necessarily a bad thing. But I think we've got to do two jobs. One is communicate clearly and communicate in a, a way that's understandable to people and in a way that's clear and you know understandable and relevant. But I think we've also got to think really long and hard about the content that we're trying to communicate. I think we've got to think deeply about the things that we're going to communicate. We've got to think, is this genuinely answering questions that people are asking? Does this genuinely do stuff for people in their lives in our community? Actually, lots of the questions that people are thrown at them, you know, these days are actually not talked about in the Bible. How does our theology actually um, impact the questions that people have got? I think we've got to think hard about how we communicate and also <laughs> and also think deeply about the content. Um, the interesting bit, I think, in this story is, for me, as a, I found this quite difficult, actually, as I looked at this package, to try and work out when Paul is talking to people at the beginning and he finds that common ground, when he's talking to them and says, look, I can see you're religious people, is this just a sort of communications ploy? Is this just a hook? So Paul's trying to butter them up and say, you know, I can see you have some good stuff going on, I'm just buttering you up so that I can then, bang, hit you with the truth, because I know the truth and you don't. And... To be honest, I can't quite work it out in this package, in this passage. Um, I think he does find that common ground with people. But then there is a sentence that says, but you're completely ignorant. You've missed God completely. And let me tell you about the truth. I'm going to proclaim the truth to you now. And then he reels off that big list of what he thinks the truth is. I think this is interesting as well because he goes on to then talk about a God that's in everything. He talks about a God that's created all people. He talks about a God that's breathed life into all people. He talks about a God that can be found everywhere, a God that's close, um, and a God that um, you can access. Um, so I'll come back to that thought in a second, because we can watch this video now. So let's give it a go. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some call it relevant. We're so cool, we call it Contempervent. Young hip guy welcoming all with graffiti and cool glasses. I welcome everybody with arms wide open, revealing my tattoo so you know I have a past. Quirky transition to band. Invite everyone to stand. Let's do it. This is the song that everyone knows. It's the song that everyone knows. Nobody knows Nobody 
So I, the reason for showing you that is I think we need to think about the packaging. So we need to think about the medium of the message and communicate clearly. But I also think we need to think about the content that we're trying to communicate. And sometimes I think the church has got a tendency to just go for communicate in a relevant way, but not really think deeply about how does the message that we're trying to communicate really have a tangible meaning for people in our communities. Um, so back to what I was saying about Paul. When he's talking to people, when he's saying, I can find common ground with you, your religious people, is he just doing this as a bit of a hook so that once he's buttered them up a bit, he can then stick a stake in the ground and say, you're ignorant, I've got the truth, um, you haven't got the truth and I'm going to tell you about it. Um, and I think he goes on to talk about God being in everything, God being found everywhere. And I can't quite work it out, honestly. I think Paul's probably working it out as he's talking to them. He can see God in everything and everyone. So maybe he's beginning to understand that there's truth everywhere. They've got some of the truth. He's got some of the truth. On the other hand, I think he sticks a stake in the ground and says, I'm going to proclaim to you now. And I think this is a bit of a risk for us here, definitely, as a church community. You'll have heard Steve talk in the past about, um, you know, on a... Christian journey, sometimes we stick a stake in the ground and say, this is what I believe, and it's the definite truth, um, and you're wrong, and I'm right. And then our opinions slowly change a bit, and, you know, our theology changes. And that's good, because theology should change, because we understand more about God, we understand more about the Bible. And then I get some new opinions, and I stick another stake in the ground and say, this is the truth, and I've got to stand up for the truth. I'm right, and you're wrong, and this is definitely the truth. And then my opinions change a bit more. And a bit down the line, I've got slightly different opinions and I stick another stake in the ground and now this is the truth. And I think that's just a dishonest way for us to approach our theology. And it's also a really arrogant way for us to talk to the world around us. I personally think, and I think probably I'm diverging a bit from Paul in, in the way he talked about it here, that God is, if we believe God genuinely is written into the fabric of everything and everyone, he's genuinely written into the fabric of nature. I think that means we can find God 
absolutely everywhere. And we should celebrate God and the truth when we see it. And we should also talk about, I, I can see it's fantastic, you're really generous. I think that is the nature of God. Let me tell you about some other things I'm excited about in who I think God is. Rather than us talking to people and saying, you're wrong, I'm right. And I think this is a real challenge for Oasis. So again, in Birmingham, um, we're looking at setting up some church communities that will interact with Muslims. Like, do we talk to those people on the basis of, I'm trying to find some common ground so I can sort of butter you up a bit and then whack you over the head with, I've got the truth and you haven't. I think that would be a terrible way for us to look at it. I think we can find God everywhere. And I think we should celebrate the truth that we find in other people, but also talk clearly about the things that I also celebrate about my faith. I don't know if that makes any sense. I think we've got to articulate the gospel. We've got to talk to people about the good news in a way that makes sense, in a way that's integrated with the whole of life, and in a way that recognizes that God genuinely is everywhere, in everyone, sewn into the fabric of nature. So if we're going to grapple a bit with the medium, so how we communicate, and also grapple with the content, how do we make sure we're just not blown about by the winds of culture? Um, so, you know, this message doesn't make sense in this culture, so let's change the message, have a different one. Um, and I don't think we do that, but I think that I've got sort of three responses to that. I think there are loads. But firstly, we've got to grapple with our understanding of God as a community in dialogue together. So you'll have heard Steve talk about the Bible in and of itself is a dialogue of people with different perspectives, different opinions, different views, all talking about who they understood God to be. And together, that dialogue takes us closer to having an understanding of God. I think we need to grapple with God and Jesus as a community together in dialogue. Secondly, I think we always need to look to the character of Jesus. If it doesn't look like Jesus, it probably isn't God. So is this liberating? Is this offering people love? Is this self-giving love? If it's not those things, it's probably not God. And thirdly, I think we need to recognize that we don't have all the answers. So we haven't got it all right. Like the things I think now will have some truth written into them, and probably a load of stuff that's rubbish. And, you know, in a year's time, I'll probably have a slightly different opinion. I think we've got to recognize when we're talking to the people that God is genuinely written into the fabric of everything and everyone, um, and that we haven't got all the right answers. So I really want to finish by just saying there are three things that I think come out of this passage for me. One is that it's super activist, that Paul sees something that distresses him, and he does something about it. Two, I think Paul communicates in everyday language. He doesn't use all his Christianese. He doesn't use in-house language. I don't think we should have two different languages, one that's for indoors when we're talking amongst ourselves and one that's for outdoors. I think one of the trick traps for us is that sometimes we use all a sort of Christian language when we least understand what we're talking about. So we disappear off into our Christianese when really we don't understand the point we're trying to make. Um, I think we should have clear language that makes sense all the time, inside and outside. And thirdly, I think we need to be clear about the content. We need to not just repackage things so that it makes sense and the language you're using is relevant, but the actual message, the actual message of the good news is relevant to people in our community. There's this really great quote, just to finish. It's from Helmut Tielicke. You've probably heard Steve talk about this quote before. It says that the gospel must be preached afresh and told in new ways to each generation, since every generation has its own unique questions. The gospel must be constantly forwarded to a new address because the recipient is repeatedly changing his place of residence. 
The gospel must be constantly forwarded to a new address because the recipient is repeatedly changing his place of residence. I think that's our job. Communicate clearly, but forward the gospel to a new address so that it's relevant to people's lives. I'm going to stop there and hand back to Dan.